Luke chapter 15, beloved, if you have a copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 15, I add my words of encouragement to you for your singing. It's always a blessing to be among those that enjoy singing the praises of the Lord and to hear our blended voices and praises is very precious indeed. We encourage you to sing. Singing is a gift. Some can certainly perform better than others. Their voices are sweeter. But it's a wonderful gift to be able to sing. And so sing we ought. My grandmother loved the Lord. My mom's mother uh, she, she always lamented that she hadn't a note at all. <laughs> she wasn't able to sing, but she would sing anyway. Uh, especially around the home, she would sing, sing the old songs of the people of God. And we should do the same. Sing in your place of work. Sing the familiar tunes. Sing Amazing Grace. You never know how someone who has gotten away from the Lord and away from perhaps the things that they were brought up to understand. Something may trigger in their heart and they remember and God begin to work. Luke chapter 15 is where we have come to in our study through the Gospel of Luke. And of course is one of the more familiar chapters of the entire book. But we're not going to get into the parables that are ahead for us. We're looking simply at the opening two verses. So let's just read those together. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. The Lord bless his word. And may it be a word and season for you and for us all here tonight. Let's pray. God, we ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let the Word live. Let it go forth with power. I feel my own weakness. God, you've heard our prayers. You know our desire to know the fullness of the Spirit, to know that unction that we need as preachers? Will you make us clean vessels and will you fill me, Lord, with your Spirit? And we pray for a word. We pray for the ability to hear it. We pray that souls might be saved. So hear us, be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One area in which I think Reformed churches have been somewhat negligent in our day relates to the view of the office of the evangelist. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, about the various offices of the church. They gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and 
teachers. And because of their revelatory role in the first century, biblically-minded pastors will come to this. Often they'll receive questions about it, and they'll deal with, well, the office of the apostle, the office of the prophet is not for today. It was unique at that time. It served a particular purpose before the completion of the canon of Scripture and so on. It will also move into the area of the teaching elder, the ruling elder, the office of the deacon within the church and what that entails and why they're still relevant and what they do within the church and what's expected with regard to their character. But what about the evangelists? You have it right there. Some evangelists. It gets almost ignored. It is either, it is neither, I should say, denied nor promoted. So you don't hear arguments against whether it is something that we should look for today, nor do you hear many promoting it either. The word evangelist means messenger of good news. This is the primary task. This was his role. We read in Acts 21, verse 8, the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. It's clear then that Philip, being appointed a deacon at some point, was also recognized as an evangelist. He was sent to Samaria. You will know that in Acts chapter 8. He performed miracles. The hand of God was upon him in his ministry. He went out also and was sent into the wilderness to deal with the Ethiopian eunuch as well. And he was engaged in the effort or the labors of the evangelist. In addition, Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.5, do the work of an evangelist. Now, when you start reading what men of the past believed concerning the role of the evangelist in the church, John Calvin took the position that the apostle, prophet, and evangelist is generally not for today. Now, if you read it all that he says, he actually opens up the possibility that in certain seasons it may be necessary for men of this kind of role because of the deterioration or the lack of truth within an area or whatever. But he says this, by evangelists I mean those who while inferior in rank to the apostles, were next them in office, and even acted as their substitutes. Such were Luke, Timothy, Titus, and the like, perhaps also the seventy disciples whom our Savior appointed in the second place to the apostles, Luke 10.1. According to this interpretation, which appears to me a consonant both to the words and the meaning of Paul, those three functions were not instituted in the church to be perpetual, but only to endure so long as churches were to be formed where none previously existed, or at least where churches were to be transferred from Moses to Christ. In other words, where there's Jews and they go in there to help them understand that Christ has come and the Messiah has arrived and they should adopt an understanding that is Christian. John Owen, great Puritan theologian, was more particular in his opposition to modern-day evangelists he argues that apostles, prophets, and evangelists had four extraordinary marks. And I'm not going to give everything that he wrote, but these marks may be helpful as he lays out in an organized fashion, as he always did uh, in his writing, kind of goes down to the very kind of minutiae of every uh, issue. But he says, first of all, speaking of these three uh, offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, they have extraordinary marks. First, an extraordinary call on to an office such as none other has or can have by virtue of any law, order, or constitution, whatever. In other words, their call into the work is unusual. It's not by the normal pattern of things. Secondly, an extraordinary power communicated 
onto persons so-called, enabling them to act what they are so-called onto, wherein the essence of any office doth consist. They are enabled in unusual ways. Thirdly, extraordinary gifts for the exercise and discharge of that power. So you have evangelists doing miracles and so on as well. And fourthly, extraordinary employment as to its extent and measure, requiring extraordinary labor, travail, zeal, and self-denial. All these do and must concur in that office and unto those offices which we call extraordinary. So he's said, not for today. It's extraordinary. It's unusual. And was for the time in the first century. Now, I'm not here to debate on. It would take me far too long, and I'm not sure I would be profitable in trying to engage against John Owen. But if we assume that he's correct, if we assume that the, the office as it's understood strictly in the biblical sense of evangelist is no longer something we should look for or uh, call or appoint someone to or recognize in their life, I still think there's a place for setting aside men for evangelistic work their function is a form of missionary endeavor, either in a particular locality or moving from place to place as required or requested. There's a place for it. Such men are not appointed to pastoral duties, so they're free to help in the planting of churches, the revitalization of churches, the evangelism of an area, and the equipping of others in a church for evangelism. Our churches in Ulster have had men like this. I've mentioned many times Albert Macaulay, he was assigned, his, his prayer card said, home missionary, but he was basically an evangelist. He was an evangelist in the local area. He stayed within North Antrim. He moved around the Balamoney area and beyond in other villages and so on and hamlets around there. He would move in those circles, and that was his work for years. He labored, and really, as an evangelist, he encouraged others in the same work and was constantly in this business. But whatever may be said, our Lord Jesus is the perfect evangelist. And I was reading this passage in preparation for tonight and just struck by the opening language where you have this evangelist par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ engaged in his work. And I wanted just to point out a number of things that you can see in these opening two verses that we draw from him as in this role of evangelist. Now, Again, the evangelist is the one who's bringing good news. Our Lord Jesus came to bring good news. Of course, he was much more than having the office of evangelist. We looked at the passage this morning that calls him an apostle, and we're dealing with one who is the quintessential, perfect example of all offices in the church. So this evening, I want to consider Jesus Christ, the perfect evangelist. Jesus Christ, the perfect evangelist. And my first point here this evening, I want to think uh, with you for a moment, is his metal, his metal. And by metal, I'm referring to M-E-T-T-L-E. -T -T -E. That is his, his character, his, the kind of tenacity of his, his, uh, his metal fortitude and so on and so forth. Because when you read these verses, you see that he was constantly under assault. Verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans, or tax collectors, and sinners, that means the chief sinners, prostitutes, people known for great sin, they draw near to him for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Immediately they are those, those of the religious elite, as it were, begin to murmur. Now, 
they were constantly doing this. In fact, you have a specific instance of it later on in this gospel, in Luke chapter 19. You will remember of the, the interaction of Jesus with Zacchaeus. On that occasion when he climbs up into the sycamore tree and he's looking for the Lord Jesus and he comes right to the base of that tree and he calls him down and he goes to his house. And we're told in Luke 19:7, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Zacchaeus was designated in this category of a, an open sinner, a wicked man, someone who is known to be untrustworthy, someone who is known to be without virtue in character and behavior. And the remarks then are of complaint. The idea of murmured is that there's this complaint that ripples through. It's not a personal complaint. It's not one person making a remark, but it's a poison. It begins with Satan, comes into the heart of one, a little like that event where the woman breaks the alabaster box at the feet of Jesus, and Judas starts this thought that it could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor, and then it tells us they all murmured against her. So it begins, Satan is working in Judas's heart, it comes out of his mouth, it spreads like a ripple effect among all the disciples, and they all murmur against her. The same thing is happening here. It's a poison. It's a virus. It begins in one heart and spreads to others. And it's a test of Christ's mettle, His fortitude, this constant being beat down for everything good He was endeavoring to do, the constant envy that they had toward Him in His ministry. It never let up. Now, thinking about this brings about the reality of criticism in leadership or in Christian ministry. We have young men here preparing for ministry. They need to be aware of the fact that they will be criticized. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. You will be criticized. And it will test you. Some of it won't bother you too much. There are various reasons for that. It may be where the criticism is coming from, because you always consider the source. Not all criticism is equal. The source matters. And so you think about that. But some of it will hurt. Some of it will come and test you. Some of it will cause you to ask questions as to why try, why bother, why go through it. Go and do something else. You will be tested by criticism. You can't avoid it. Especially if you're trying to do anything for God. I put down here, criticism is the favored employment of the idol. Because as I have matured, that's the one common denominator you tend to see. The criticism is the favored employment of the idol. It tends to come from people who aren't doing anything. And there are reasons for that. Number one, they have the time. <laughs> they have the time. And second of all, the people who are doing something, though they may see a fault, tend to be more cautious in their remarks because they themselves know they're open to criticism. They're trying to do something. What they're trying to do is not without fault. And so they're sensitive to it. Say, I'm not going to run out and criticize that brother because I could be criticized as well. 
I'm not getting everything right. Criticism's reality. The Lord was faced with it all of the time. And of course, he's not alone. You see this all over the Bible. Turn for a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Great example of it here. Young people need to know this too, because especially if you try to live for God, listen to me, young person. You in your teens, you in your 20s, if you try to really live for God, you're going to be criticized. People are not going to like it because really it ties into what we were considering last weekend and the whole idea of gravitas. Youth tends to bring with it levity, which is why you have to exhort young people to be sober, to be grave. They have to be exhorted. It doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is is living lightly. Right? We, we, we thought of that, those who were there for that message by the Reverend Beers. So whenever a young person is more grave, more sober, it doesn't sit well with everyone. And they're going to be criticized by your peers. They're going to call you, they're, they're going to say things. They're not going to enjoy your company if you start getting all serious. And especially the older ones, the ones who are slightly older than you they'll be especially offended by the fact that you're living as you are and taking things seriously. And this is what happens to David. I can't read it all. You know the story. It's that of his arrival on the scene when Goliath is threatening, and you have the armies standing on two sides of a valley, the Valley of Elah, and everyone, at least on the side of Israel, are trying to figure out, what are we going to do? And David is sent by his father to to go and see how they're getting on and to uh, go with supplies. And when he arrives there, he's he sees what's going on. And I, I, I'm not going to read it all here. But if you if you go down to verse 28, when David is informed of what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, Eliab, verse 28, his eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? With, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, and the naughtiness of thine heart, or the badness of the wickedness of your heart. For thou art come down, that thou mightest see the battle. Eliab doesn't ask questions. He has no idea. He's, he's there at the order of his father. It's the only reason why he's there. The fact that he has arrived on the scene and, and views it and takes it in and asks some questions about what is going on angers him. Eliab knows. He knows. He knows the spirit of his, of his young brother. He knows that here is a young man who is serious about living for God. And with that seriousness comes a strange sort of a courage. He doesn't really care about what people think. He cares about what the Lord thinks. And so he responds. He is is courteous. He is also very brief. 
10 words. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? He doesn't try to explain to him. Our Father sent me. He just responds, what have I now done? In other words, what, what fault are you finding in me now? Is there not a cause? You will be criticized, just like our Lord Jesus Christ. You try to do something for God, you will be criticized. You will. People find fault in what you do, the way you do it, who you do it with, how often or how few of the times that you do it, whatever. Just, they sit there and critique And this is what the Pharisees did. They had all the time in the world to critique. The Lord Jesus moves, constantly laboring. The night cometh when no man can work, so from sunup to sundown, Christ is laboring. And He is making an impact. Lives are being transformed. People are being helped. And they hate it. And instead of humbling themselves and saying, There's, there are things we can learn from this man, they huddle around and criticize. You find the same with Nehemiah as well. With Sambalat and Tobiah trying to hinder him. Nehemiah 6 verse 4 we read there, And I sent messengers on to them saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? He's being courteous. He's not wanting to enter into argumentation. He doesn't have time for it. But he knows what's going on. He understands what is in their heart. Critics never kill giants and never build walls. Giants are killed and walls get built by men that stay on mission and can discern the serpentine hiss of unhelpful criticism. And never was a man more criticized than Jesus. I think sometimes we forget he was about 30. He was a man. He was mature. He was... At the very age, at the point at which Levites would engage fully into their priestly ministry. So it's not like he was a novice. But still, still, there's a difference between dealing with things like this at 30 and at 50. Those 20 years make a difference. And he's at the, the bottom end of the scale. In his 30s, dealing with all of this critical thought, and many of those that would criticize him, they are, they are in their 50s, they're in their 60s, maybe older. And so it's a test of his mettle. The ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as an evangelist, as one who has come to bring good news to sinners, is tested constantly by the criticisms of those that envied him and hated him. And yours will be too. 
If you manage to get through life without criticism, there's only one reason for that. You're not doing anything. Try to do something. Always amazes me. Amazes me. See these people, even through all the COVID stuff. And obviously, we all fashioned our opinions. We all had them, right? We all had them. But I read of these, some of the harshest critics were men that have literally done nothing. I mean nothing. They have no ministry role, no leadership position. They, they shoot at elders and ministers and politicians and anyone and everyone that doesn't quite get it as they understand it. And they fire their arrows. And at 60 years of age, at an age at which you should be able to look back and say, I've done something. They've done nothing. They just sit back and criticize everyone. It's pathetic. It is pathetic. You young men as well, you're, you're, going, to have to, you're going to have to embrace responsibility, and with responsibility comes criticism. You're going to get it. So you have two choices. You can sit and do nothing, at which point you'll probably be critical, or you can engage in it, and you start fighting giants and building walls. The Lord Jesus, the things they said about him, the way they dealt with him, so his metal. We have also his magnetism. There's a magnetism about this great evangelist. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Then drew near unto him. They were, they were drawn. The crowds were drawn. Over and over again we have said, seen this. On occasions we have remarked on the size and scale of the crowds. But as we think of his magnetism, why these people are being drawn close to Jesus Christ, first we know it was nothing to do with his appearance. There was nothing out of the ordinary about his appearance. I am sure he had a warmth to his nature. He must have had. He had to have. In fact, Luke's gospel is perhaps the strongest in arguing as to the warmth of the Lord Jesus Christ in his manner. Why do I say that? I say that because of all the gospels and all the records concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke is the one that focuses on the people you wouldn't expect being drawn to him. And with specific reference... To women. There were women that were coming to him, spending time near him, ministering unto him of their substance. Look at it. That wasn't the norm. There must have been a warmth to his manner. There must have been an approachability to his demeanor. There must have been a sense that he, he is certainly not just, he teaches as one having authority and not as the scribes, but not just in his teaching, in his whole decorum. He was distinct. It is prophesied concerning him in Isaiah 53, verse 2, He hath no form nor comeliness, and we may shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. 
There's no natural draw. This, this is not someone who becomes an influencer because they're blessed with unusual physical beauty. Right? Lots of those today. It was nothing to do with his appearance. It was everything to do with his words. Everything to do with his words. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. They wanted to hear him. It wasn't that Jesus was always easy to hear. Go back to the previous chapter. Look at what he says about what it means to be a disciple of his. These are hard words. You need to love me above your family. You need to be prepared to sacrifice everything. Oh, he didn't tickle ears. He did not make it easy. And yet they were drawn. They were drawn to hear him. I hazard a guess, really, if you were weighing up the harshness, or at least the difficulty or the weight of the words of the average Pharisee or scribe in their teaching and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' words would have cut deeper. So it's not like you're comparing someone with harsh language and with Joel Osteen who wants to make you feel like you know, you're some kind of superhero. You pronounce things about yourself every morning affirmations, so that you live your best life now. <laughs> no. No, Jesus brought difficult language. Read the Sermon on the Mount. So, so it's not like he was making it easy for them. So what's the difference? What's the difference? Why are they drawn to hear him? And there may be some there may be various reasons given. I'll grant you that. But the one that struck me as I was meditating on this was his accessibility. The Pharisees and scribes would step back and teach. But you couldn't get near them. They didn't want to touch you, publicans and sinners, prostitutes, and whatever crimes and sins that you've been guilty of and known for, don't come near us. They, 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 might, they might extend teaching to you. They might make suggestions of the wrongness of your life. But they had a kind of demand that you go away and clean yourself up before they can change their opinions of you. They were not accessible people. They were aloof. But, but Christ was not like that. Christ brought the harsh words, but, but you could get near to Him. And in fact, He invited it. He invited you to come near because He was there to help you. He wanted to touch your life. He wanted to influence your understanding. He wanted to encourage you along. He wanted to enable you. He wanted to minister to them in such a way that brought about change. Think of John 4. Think of the woman at the well. 
Think of her character. Think of how she was known. Think of the disgrace that it brought. There's no way a religious leader is going to go near her. But Christ sends his disciples into town, get them away, so that he can engage with her. And ask pertinent questions. And with unbelievable wisdom and tact, lead her to see the depravity of her own heart and life and the need of her soul. The water that I give. Well, if he's going to give water, I need to be able to get to him. Don't I? The water that I give. You drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Oh, the evangelist condemns sin. Christ did it. But but he doesn't hate sinners. Yes, we may say, God is judges angry with the wicked every day. We know that. But the evangelist is not judge. The evangelist is sent to call them in, to invite them, to love their neighbor, to love their enemies, to give them understanding of the welcome and the invitation of the Lord. Calling them amidst all their sin and depravity, all their wickedness of the past. He calls you. Oh, I I hope everyone here understands that. Christ doesn't stand afar off and point the finger. Christ points the finger, but He comes right up close and puts His arm around you and says, here's how I can help. I thought of those words in Psalm 45, Messianic Psalm, the second verse of that psalm. It says, Thou art fairer, than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Grace. Why why fairer than the children of men? Maybe some various ways, but again, grace is poured into thy lips. That's why they drew near. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Grace flowed from his lips. Harsh words, yes. Strong language. Condemning tones. But grace. They could get near to him. He was available there to help them. And so there was a magnetism. They drew near. Now, that has to be found in our lives. If we are going to influence people for Christ, there must be a magnetism to us. It must be, yes, we don't trifle with sin. We don't, in an effort to be seen as cool or accepting when a joke is being spread across the workplace or some video is being shown on someone's phone that is supposedly humorous or whatever it might be, if it's off limits for the Christian, you don't engage. You don't engage. In fact, you want to be known to the point that they won't even bother inviting you into their little huddle of sin. 
Don't bother. Oh, Jimmy won't care about it. Leave him. Not interested. Rightly so. That's the testimony you want. But at the same time, there has to be a tone. There has to be a manner. There has to be a, a posture. There has to be a frame of your life so that you invite them in all their troubles. You invite them amidst all their sin. You say, listen, I'm here for you. Let me help you with that. You, 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 you're, you have to be seen as accessible. That you actually care. That if they are lost at sea at some point in life, they can speed dial your number at 2.30 in the morning and you'll be there. Thirdly, his ministry. Seen his metal, his magnetism, his ministry. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. A few things to note here about his ministry. First, his ministry was to sinners. That's what they murmur. This man receiveth sinners. He ministers to sinners. This remark is that which, like that which we find in Luke 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. It's said in a derogatory way. Here's Jesus Christ. He eats with people. So because he eats, we're going to call him a glutton. Because he drinks, we're going to call him a wine-bibber. And he is a friend of publicans and sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors and the worst kind of people in society. And they're saying this as criticism. They puff out their chests and, and say, who would go near him? Who would give him credibility? They're so filled with their own self-importance they can't understand. This is exactly what people are after. Oh, they twisted it. Christ was not a glutton. Nor was he a wine-bibber. And in the sense that he was a friend of publicans and sinners, it was not that he engaged in what they did. But he was near them. Where they were willing to come to him, he was there for them. Now, there are various times in life where we meet with people that hold to maybe particular views, or they practice certain things that are very unchristian. And, and maybe it rises in the mind of the Christian, what should I do here? Someone at your work, you go, you invite them over to your house, and in the midst of discussion, you find out that they, I don't know, something that offends you. They do yoga, or they engage in tarot cards or, I don't know, something else. And you're, you're offended. 
Immediately you're offended. There needs to be caution. There needs to be caution. There's a difference between someone doing something in ignorance and someone trying to push it down your throat. They start trying to push their ideas down your throat in a way that makes you deeply uncomfortable or in a way that you find is in some way hurting or influencing you, then bid them Godspeed. Do not bid them Godspeed, rather. Just send them out of your home or out of your life. Don't get close to them. But it doesn't help us to so close ourselves in. People are sinful. Everyone's sinful. And the farther our community and society gets away from the gospel, the more sinful it becomes. So what do we do? What are we going to do? Just cloister ourselves in? Leave them to it? We have to be able to engage with them, speak to them, minister to them, while not engaging in what it is that they do that is wrong. We can't become, go for a moment, Luke 18. We cannot become like that which Jesus describes in a parable in Luke 18. This has to be some of the scariest language that, that, we, can, that we can read for those that are in the church, that are afraid of the world out there and what people get up to. Luke 18, verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now underline that. There's a twofold aspect here. They think they're righteous and they despise others. Well, I would like to think no one here imagines yourself righteous, self-righteous, that you're getting to God, you're entering heaven, you're pleasing God by your own merit. I would like to think no one here lives in such a delusion. But the other fault has to be recognized as one that is possibly very real in the hearts of those of us here. Despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, that's good. I'm glad you're not like that. I'm glad you're not like that. Or even as this publican. You see? I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes onto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Despised others. We have to be, we, ha we cannot do this. Jesus didn't do this. He didn't despise others. He knew more about their sin and their wickedness than anyone. That's what, that's what struck the woman of John Ford. That's what she was 
Come see a man that told me all that ever I did. He has, with laser focus and understanding, he, has, he, he sees right into my heart. He knows the whole history of my life. Come and see him. She was afraid of him knowing everything about her. Why was that? Why was she not afraid? Because she could come to him. And he wasn't trying to condemn. He was trying to console with the message of of everlasting life through him. You go back to Luke 15. Really, the, the remark of the Pharisees and scribes shows that they did not believe themselves to be sinners. They didn't believe themselves to be sinners. So they exclude themselves. He hasn't come to us. He's gone to them. Sinners. Those out there. They didn't believe they were sinners. If that starts coming into your mind, you have no hope. This is why Christ came. Go go to Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll read from verse 9. This is the call of another great sinner, Matthew. Levi. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So how do you categorize yourself? Let's just pause over this. Christ came to minister to sinners. The religious say, they're over there, not here. They can't be saved. They're not going to heaven. There's no hope for them. All the religious activity, years of religious diligence, decades of devotion to religious rite and practice and ceremony, to achieving position and prestige within the religious elite, nothing. It's all empty. It means nothing. In fact, it's condemnation upon them. Christ, they were right. He receives sinners. That's his ministry. He comes to minister to sinners. I trust this church is always aware that this is a place of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, yes, but sinners. Sinners nonetheless. Here's a congregation of sinners. People who know themselves to be sinners. And we draw near unto Him for to hear Him. That's why we come, isn't it? We come in the Lord's day, we draw near unto Him for to hear Him. I need to hear from Him. I'm a sinner. Come in here into the Lord's house and you don't need to be told that there's no hope for you. You need to be given a message of hope. Jesus has come for sinners. If you can just see that you're a sinner, there is hope 
for you. He will draw near to sinners. So his ministry was to sinners. Secondly, his ministry was to receive sinners. That's what they say. This man receiveth sinners. That is to say, the idea of the word receiveth. Receive one into intercourse and companionship. To look for them. To show hospitality to them. This is intimate. It is receiving in the sense of embracing and pulling them in. And so this is what the great evangelist Jesus Christ is doing. He is pulling men in. He is showing companionship towards them. He's showing his interest in them. He's extending a certain amount of hospitality towards them. That's why he sits with them. His hospitality primarily in its its primary role is the offering of an invitation to others to be with you, to sit at your table, to be in your home, to be under your care. But there's a flip side to hospitality in that it must be received. And this is what Jesus did. He received the invitation of men. When Matthew says, come, he went. He joined with Zacchaeus despite all the reputation that he had. On other occasions, he joined with those that were despised within the community. He had a heart. He had a warmth. Some men have a love for preaching, and that's it. They have a love for preaching. Jesus Christ had a love for men. God spare us. God spare us. God spare me from merely having an interest in preaching. What an indictment. Thirdly, his ministry was to transform sinners. It was to sinners. It was to receive sinners. It was to transform sinners. Think of the people we've already met. Think of the demoniac of Gadara. Think of the woman that Simon the Pharisee looked down and if he knew what kind of a sinner this woman is. And she's weeping there at his feet in Luke 7. Think of the woman again in Luke 8 who came and ministered unto him of their substance. Like Mary Magdalene, out of which Christ cast out seven devils. Think of these people. And the Pharisees are ministering. They're spending their life with the idea that they're trying to help their community. Here comes one helping the community, and they hate him. They can't stand it. And this is a danger. This is a danger as we look on and we see other groups and other ministries and other churches, and we evaluate what they're doing. Be slow in judgment. Be slow. Oh, there can be things that are done. There is a philanthropic effort that can be done without the gospel and to the detriment of the gospel. I get it. But be careful. Just be slow. Here's the point as we close. Read the text again. You who are here and you don't know if you're saved or not, or you don't know how to be saved, or you're wondering if you can be saved, or you have some hope that someday you will be saved, but it's not tonight, it's not now, I want you to see these words. I want you to get into the picture. I want you to feel what they're saying. Then drew near unto him. You need to do that. Get to Christ. Get near to Christ. Stop standing afar off. Stop being a spectator of the things of the gospel. Don't come here and warm a pew with no desire to get near to Christ. You have to get near. And you have to hear him. You have to hear him. Oh, and we're going to proceed through these verses when he begins to speak. 
on what words, what words they are of a shepherd going after the one that's lost, of the woman that's looking for the silver amidst the darkness, of the, of the prodigal as received with open arms. We're going to look at all of that. And it's going to underline the truth of this. This man truly receives sinners. He receives them. His whole life's mission is to go after sinners and bring them in. It's to say, draw near to me, sinner. Stop standing there in your sin. Stop, stop wallowing in your iniquity. Stop being over there thinking that you can't be saved. Thinking that you've out-sinned grace. You've gone too far. Too many years have passed. He comes and says, no, no. No, come to me. Come to me. Am I speaking to someone who's been sitting and you've heard hundreds of sermons calling you to Christ and you haven't come? Why? What are you waiting for? Do you need him to express it in a different way? Do you need him to, to tell you in other language? Is there not sufficient in the pages of this book that, that beckon you, yes, you, you, whoever you are, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how long you've lived. I don't care what sins you've committed. I don't care who you've hurt. I don't know what your past. How, I don't, it doesn't matter. Christ, Christ, you can draw near to Christ. He's here. He's here. He's here for you. He bid you come. He will receive you. He will be the best friend you've ever had because he will never misunderstand your motives. Nor will he ever flatter you saying things that are not true. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But he will always be there. He will always be there. This is his business. Are you desperate enough? Can you not see what he has done? It's like he's, think of it, he, he, he is walking, this will close, but he is, he is on a path, he is heading towards Jerusalem. He's like on course for death. If, if you knew you were on a journey that was going to terminate in a short time with you suffering on a Roman cross, For the most part, you'll be completely taken up with preparing yourself for that. What's Jesus doing? He is going through the towns and the villages. He is going into homes and sitting down. He is listening to their problems. He is seeing their circumstances, and he is calling them to repentance. And the whole time, they're asking him, where are you going now, Jesus? Well, I'm going here. But ultimately, here's where I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. Why, Jesus? Why must you go to Jerusalem? Oh, friend! Why must I go to Jerusalem? I must go there. 
I must offer myself for the sins of many. I must have laid on me the iniquity of you all. I must bear your sin and suffer the judgment of God so that you go free. So that your sins, which are many, can be washed away. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That I can take them and blot them out as a thick cloud. That I can cast them into the depths of the sea. This is what I'm about. Going to the cross, bearing your sin, suffering in your stead, that you might live. That your past need not haunt you. That your skeletons need not bring fear to your heart. That he will set you free. May God bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. It's time some of you sought the Lord. Are you in Christ? Are your sins forgiven? Are you ready? Are you prepared to meet your God? It is time. Right now, here where you are, do business. Cast your sins on Jesus. Lay them all there. And receive from him a full, free, instant pardon. Stop saying, we're all sinners. Start telling God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But this man receiveth sinners. There are some of the children here and you're not saved. Boys and girls, you can be saved. Jesus receives little children who are sinners too. He'll save you. Lord, we pray, bless thy word. Please, give help. Give deciding grace, as it were. Enable those who are fighting and struggling to surrender. Oh, blessed. Blessed moment that is when we stop fighting God. When we stop resisting. Please, oh God. You know those here, they're not hid from you. We plead with thee. Put thy finger on their hearts, on their lives. Call them. Call them to thyself. Hear our prayer. Bless our fellowship tonight. As we talk one with the other, let it be edifying. Go with thy church this week, empowering us to live. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, 
the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.